0: thank you for for praying with me and again what a privilege it is to be your pastor for i don't know this is week 3 i guess and i want to i want to remind you and make you aware i'm so glad your children are in here i've got my own they do not bother me It will not be a problem if they make noise. So please do not feel a burden, a stress. If they need to get up and walk around, it will not be the most distracting thing I've endured this week. So know that. We also have resource bags over at our Pew Bible rack. If you have young children, avail yourself of those. Let us know if supplies run low, and we'll replenish it uh, when you return it. Um, But uh, we, we are happy they're here, honestly, genuinely. So grateful for you. I'm going to be a bit vulnerable as we move into our sermon now. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Exodus chapter 2. This week preparation was uniquely uniquely difficult and uh, a little bit more emotional than normal because you'll see in just a moment that Moses was a three-month-old baby when his mom laid him into a basket. And uh, this whole week I've thought as I've been feeding my own three-month-old baby, what was it like to lay a three-month-old baby into a basket. What was that like? You know, this three-month-old baby, I mean, I'm looking at mine, and Moses had probably just learned how to smile, might have just learned how to laugh, probably smiles when he looks at mom and dad. Uh, he might be holding his head up and he might love hearing big sister or big brother sing to him. Little three-month-old Moses. His mother, Jacobed, Moses' mother, places him in a basket into the Nile River to save his life, which has to make us, when you're being a parent, it changes your perspective on things, because I'm thinking, you know, was Moses cold in the basket? Uh, was, he, uh, was he scared in the basket? Did the basket stay upright? We, yeah, maybe, maybe it did. That moment is emotional. It's horrifying. When you stop to think about it, it makes you ask the question, what mother would lay her baby down in a river? What would possess a mother to do that? What does that mother know to be true about God? What does that mother know to be true about God? Let's find out and turn our attention to our text. Look with me again, Exodus chapter two. I'm gonna be reading from verses one to 10. Exodus two, one to 10. Now the, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it, the basket, among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Just a few notes about the text. I'd like for you to file away today. I'll be coming back to these ideas a couple times, so I wanna get them on the front end, so as you're listening, you can access these files later on. The first is, this passage reverberates, reverberates messages from Genesis, okay? There's all sorts of callbacks to the book of Genesis in this text, not least of which is from another man that was put into a teba, okay? I'm not gonna spoil the surprise for what that is but another man was put into a tabah, right? But then notice also here how, unlike our text last week, unlike our text last week, all of these figures are completely anonymous. They could be anybody, and they should be everybody. I'm going to return to those two notes repeatedly throughout the sermon because I want to again answer the question I asked before, what would possess a mother to lay her infant down in the river? What does this mother know about God's character? What does this mother know about God's character? And it's this, Moses' mother knew that God can be trusted to redeem any desperate situation. Moses' mother knew that God can be trusted to redeem any desperate situation, So here's what each of us face. Each of us is going to find ourselves in a situation where God is going to have to come through. We're all going to find ourselves in some situation at some point in our lives where God is going to have to come through for us. These first three verses echo and anticipate, uh, echo a hope and anticipation that go all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to Eden, where everybody is waiting on a boy who will end the back-breaking toil brought about by the curse, In Genesis 3.15, there's a promise. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, first gospel, Proto-Evangelion. It's the promise that a woman would bear a child who would break the curse's back. And God promises this blessed child will come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This child who ends the curse is going to be a Hebrew boy. So, throughout the book of Genesis, people are waiting on a son. It's not that daughters don't matter. All this text has been about women so far, but people are waiting on a son because God promised that it would be an offspring, a son who would do this work. It's part of the reason, again, genealogy is so important, but it's part of the reason that those who are keen on opposing God's plan are keen on eliminating Hebrew boys. Critically, Verse 2, we have a linguistic connection to this refrain that echoes 16 times throughout the book of Genesis. Again, everybody's waiting on a boy. So the phrase repeatedly is conceived and bore. Happens 16 times, and this is the last time that Moses uses this phrase. We are supposed to see that Moses is connected to the promise given to Abraham, the one who would organize and establish the people of God into a nation. So what's the problem? Our text zooms in from the prologue, which is a nationwide crisis of Pharaoh's issued a decree to eliminate all the Hebrew boys. Again, he's threatened by God's blessing on them. The more he presses them, the more God is blessing. And we're zooming in in our text on one family unit, Zooming in a one-family unit, we have a young mother here, a Levite, who has a three-month-old baby boy. Again, let me remind you, a three-month-old has just learned how to smile. Might just be holding up his head. Smiles whenever Jacobed looks at him. And hanging over this baby boy's head is a national edict that he's to be thrown into the river. Please don't let your familiarity with the text callous your hearts from how horrifying this moment is. If you are a Hebrew, you are waiting on a son to end the curse, and Pharaoh is throwing your baby boys into the river. This is a desperate situation, so the mother hides her son. She does the right thing and hides her son. This this text today, though, cuts right at the heart of our own anxious age. Ours is an age marked by panic. The the 20th century gave us tremendous confidence that the new millennium would usher in an era of human flourishing. There would be a decline in sickness, sadness, despair, but we have now learned is that the external concerns like disease and pestilence, starvation, which were Eliminated and significantly reduced by good engineering and creative application of science has netted a misplaced confidence. It's netted a misplaced confidence in our abilities to manage our circumstances. And so our generation, our children's generation, is the most affected by mental illness ever. Why, in our age of panic, we're now seeing that we thought we could manage these expectations and circumstances, but we are without cultural tools to cope anymore. The full secularizing effect of this misplaced confidence means that you and I fundamentally know that the world is stable, but our children's generation won't. They won't know that it's stable, even when it feels like it's spinning for us. We know, right, our generation, as, as long as we uh, remain faithful to Scripture and then pass this knowledge on, we know that ultimate reality, the reason we know the world isn't spinning out of control, even when it feels like a new Pharaoh's edict is hanging over us, is because ultimate reality is a person, and his fundamental disposition is care towards his creation and love for his people. I can't imagine Jacob's fear the people today are fragile because they're being asked to bear a weight that they have no categories to bear. They're being asked to live in a world affected by sin that feels like unordered chaos because they don't know there's a God redeeming it and reconciling it to themselves, to himself. Again, you probably yourself can't imagine Jacob's fear, but each of us has been in a situation where God had to come through. God had to come through, where where if it seems like he doesn't, uh, we really can't go on. Jacob does something that most of us would consider insane here. She trusts that God would redeem this most desperate situation. Why? Because Jacob knows that God keeps his promises. Jacob knows that God keeps his promises. Each of us, in the course of our lives, are told that we have to have faith that God will come through even if we don't see how. We're told by the word of God to have faith that God will come through even if we don't see how this will happen. Look with me in the next couple verses, right? Verse three, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch, put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. You see, Each of us, again, is going to find ourselves in a situation where God's going to have to come through, and each of us are going to have to have faith that God will, in fact, come through even if we don't see how. The women in this text are anonymous. We know who they are, and I'll get to that in a second, but they're anonymous because they could be anybody in this moment. And again, they should be everybody. But we have the benefit of knowing who these women are because of later details in the Pentateuch. In Numbers 26.59, you can listen with me. Numbers 26.59, we learn that Moses' mother's name was Jacobed. How do I know that? I'm not super clever. I just read ahead a little bit, okay? The tools for for everything I'm doing are right there for you as well. We learn a couple of other key details from Numbers 26.59. Not only, let me read the text for you and then I'll give you those details. The name of Amram's wife was Jacobed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. She bore to Amram Aaron, Moses, Miriam, their sister. So we know about Jacobed, we don't get it from our text, but we know from other places in the Bible about Jacobed that her grandfather was Jacob. Who the man, you you remember Jacob was the man who wrestled with God and got a blessing for it. Her uncle was Joseph who was used by God to save both Egypt and Israel. And she herself had not traveled into Egypt, but in fact was born in Egypt. She is one generation removed from God saving Egypt through Joseph's actions, through her uncle Joseph's actions. What a a heritage right there, right? So what confidence motivates these steps that she's taking? One of my former professors, Jim Hamilton, kind of cheekily about this text, but, uh, but he says that there's no Netflix in Jacob's day and age. So she probably spent her evenings around a fire, hearing stories from Grandpa Jacob, Uncle Joseph, Uncle Reuben, her dad Levi, about how God had prepared a place for them, that God had brought them to this land that they would live and not perish in a famine. So we can imagine their sanctified imagination, that deep down, maybe even as she laid baby Moses into the reed basket, she said to herself, God brought us, he brought our people to this land to live, not die. My baby boy, this boy is not going to die. He will live. God brought our people here to live, not to die. My baby boy will live. Of course, the text does not tell us her inner thoughts, but a mother willing to do this must have some settled confidence that God can redeem even the most desperate situation. And Jacobet knew it would happen through Moses. She calls the baby boy "fine," which means something different than how nineteen nineties vocal harmony legends Boys to Men meant it when they sang about it in their balance. The word here is "tov." which is yet another echo from the book of Genesis, where someone else sees something and says that it is Tove. God saw that it was good. The construction of the phrase is a bit odd. What mother looks at her baby and says, I see that it is good, right? This beautiful baby, right, of course, but it does not read she thought it was fine. Instead, Jacobed sees that God has declared him to be fine. And in fact, that's exactly how later biblical authors clarify what Jacobed's motivations were in this text. In Acts 7, Stephen's speech, for example, this is what Jacobed means. Verse 7 uh, chapter 7 verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was beautiful in God's sight, not Jacobed's sight. God's sight. So, what did his mother do based on that? She hid him. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. She protects the child by hiding him, and then she protects the child by giving him to the Lord. The author of Hebrews highlights this act, her laying him into the basket as an act of faith. Listen to Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That again is odd. They didn't put him in the basket because they were afraid. They put him in the basket because they were not afraid because they knew who God was. They were giving the baby to the Lord. None of us have the strength to do this alone. Not one of us has the strength to do what Jacob had did. That faith is a gift fortified through ever-increasing trials. Here's the deal. Again, not one of us could do this. I, you know, I, have, a, I have a daughter. My second daughter used to go to a, a preschool, my middle daughter. And this preschool, uh, they, the drop-off was this, was this big parking lot. You'd have to come in and park, and you weren't supposed to get out of your car. You are supposed to open your door, and your baby girl was supposed to climb out of her car seat on her own and walk into the school by herself, I did not like that, we did not like that, and so, uh, you know, she's our two-year-old daughter, so we defiantly parked every day and walked her into the classroom. The school would send out these really passive-aggressive emails reminding us, reminding everybody, it was, you know, these were emails to the Carters, not to everybody else in the school, um, but we were customers, so what was the worst they were gonna do to us, right? I could not, and we could not bear to see her little body struggle under the weight of her backpack, her water bottle, and her lunchbox. She's two. You're probably similar. So I want to emphasize again, Jacobet is not reckless here. She's not wholly hoping for the best. She's a deep trust that God is going to redeem the situation. That God's gonna redeem the situation and bring something good out of it. Do something like God had already done for her family through her uncle Joseph. So we have to ask the question, what is faith? It's providential. I did not plan this. I'm not clever enough that our catechism asks the question, what is true faith? It's one of those superintending providences of the Lord, okay? I'm not that clever. Why does the author of Hebrews call this an act of faith? Because Jacobed acted as if the promises of God were true. She acted as if the promises of God are true. If you have been promised by God that a boy from your line will live and break the curse and you lay your baby boy in a river, you are knowing, you're not wondering, you're not wholly hoping for the best, you are knowing that God's promises are true. Part of I think what gets us confused in the faith work dichotomy is that the Bible does not describe faith as a leap into a void, or some gap that fills in the, the knowledge of what we know for sure and what we cannot know. Uh, that not even close. That idea of, of uh, faith as a leap comes from a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. And that's not even what he meant by a leap of faith. Before it ever took on these religious connotations, the word faith meant a trusting confidence. A trusting confidence. Fide, faith. You put your money into a bank, a safe, or a mattress, and not the street corner, because you have fide, that it will be underneath your mattress and not at the street corner. You believe that, and you act as if that's true. That's faith. Jacobi can act as if the promises of God are true because she's already seen God act through her uncle Joseph. She's already seen God keep his promise, So how does this faith grow? How does Jacob's faith grow? How does our faith grow? God allows our faith to grow through trials so that we would have an ever-increasing amount of trustworthiness in his promises. His first call on your life is not to be laying down your child in the Nile River. Making a waterproof basket for that child. That's not the first thing he's gonna ask you to do. Instead, in an ever increasing but always gentle cadence, he's going to gently expose for each of us our misplaced confidence. Always asking our soul, Who do you say that I am? Is there only one God in your heart? Like a toddler learning to walk, the Christian grows in faith by getting on the other side of a trial and recognizing God was faithful here. And the next trial comes, I can have confidence that God will get me through this one as well. Again and again and again. Jacob's trust, her faith, allows her to act as if God's promise is true. She lays her son down in the river. Jesus himself entered the most desperate of situations to redeem all desperate situations to himself. Look at our text again. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds. We are going to see some intense connections between the Lord Jesus Christ and Moses right here. Moses' mother delivers him from the judgment of Pharaoh by building him a basket in Hebrew, teba. That's the same word that another vessel of deliverance in the book of Genesis is used. An ark where God commands Noah to build an ark. And in fact, Moses definitely wants us to draw these connections because these are the only two occasions where he uses this Hebrew word, Nowhere else in the Bible, right here and in Genesis 6. That's where he uses them. Moses wants for us to draw these parallels. Even Jacob's action of sealing the basket is reminiscent of God sealing the ark around Noah to keep him safe in Genesis six fourteen. Guys, this is a desperate situation. Jacobet is at the end of, of her rope. She's at her wit's end. She's out of resources. It's possible the baby's cries are louder. She can no longer hide him. We don't know everything, but she clearly has to trust what her grandfather, uncle, and her dad taught her. God brought our people to this land not to die, but to live. My baby boy's gonna live. A river meant for death for the nation of Israel is about to be redeemed for the life of Israel. Remember from last week, the Nile River was this godlike force in the Egyptian mind. Its annual floods are what made the Egyptian nation the breadbasket of the ancient world. And Pharaoh believed that by throwing the Hebrew boys into the Nile, he would preserve for himself a life for his nation. What he doesn't realize is that Acts seals the fate of his nation Because God often inverts our expectations of blessing and shows us that his ordinary pattern is actually through surprise, weakness, and opposition. This is the life of Jesus, brothers and sisters. You're supposed to see the foreshadows of opposition, of being laid down in a place of death, brought up for the life of a nation This is the life of Jesus. Death sentences hang over both baby Moses and baby Jesus. Both are born with edicts from a king to extinguish the baby boys from the nation. Just as Moses is laid in a place intended for death to rescue a people, Jesus Christ is laid in a place really dead, really dead in order to deliver his people. Both will be drawn out, one from the water, one from the grave. Both the Nile and Golgotha are places intended for death, which God redeems for life. God does not bring an end, bring us to an end of ourselves that we would die, but live in these places of death. These trials are often the place where God's mercy has the best place to work. Jacob's son is laid down in a desperate situation with her committing a boy's life to God. God the son, Jesus Christ, is laid down committing his own life to God the Father. Why did Jesus Christ do this? Because each and every one of us is gonna find ourselves at some point in our lives at our wits end, out of resources, with no recourse for action. And what does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith in Jesus Christ? What does it mean, right, to have saving faith in Jesus Christ? It's not some holy hoping for the best. I am hoping Jesus Christ will work this out. No, to have saving faith in Jesus Christ is this. It's to be honest that you're at your wit's end. It's to be honest. I don't have any more resources here and trust that what he says is true, he will redeem you, and he will redeem your desperate situation. It's to give up your misplaced confidences and claim for yourself and trust in the promises of God. Knowing the author of Life and Death, guys, moves us from a place of impossible faith to confident faith. I'll make a brief word here on Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, I want to make, again, a brief word on Pharaoh's daughter. I'm going to return to the mother and the boy in just a minute to conclude how God redeems the situation for them, but I want to zoom in here on Pharaoh's daughter for a moment. Again, um, and, and and just want to highlight this, this unnamed woman's piety. Uh, before I do that, let me say, I, I led a tour to Israel, an undergraduate study tour to Israel in 2016, and uh, part of a tour, it's the... Outside of the Temple Mound and, and the Temple Complex, Yad Vashem is the second most visited place. It's the, it's the Israeli Holocaust Museum. Yad Vashem means a name and a, a name and a, and a heritage. Now there's one exhibit where somebody pointed out something to me that's never occurred to me. Women disproportionately survived the rounding up. The rounding up. Uh, that happened before the Holocaust because they could conceal their true identity. All Jewish boys and men had a defining mark on them, which made it clear this is a Hebrew. How did the daughter of Pharaoh know that this was one of the Hebrew boys? This three-month-old boy certainly had the covenant sign on him. Genesis 17, 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. There was no mistaking this baby boy's ethnicity. She knows, and she knows what her father's decreed. The Bible doesn't call her righteous, so I'm not gonna call her righteous, but she does the right thing here. In every circumstances that every text gives, there's not many more for the next coming stories here in our texts as we go through Exodus. But I'm gonna take the moment every time to say to our culture of death, it's always right to save a life. Always right to save a life. It's never wrong to ignore the command to kill. It is always right to ignore the king's edict and let someone live. You always defy the decree and save the baby. Always, never doubt this. You always ignore the technocrat and keep the infant, and you always resist the rule and command to kill to preserve the life. Babies and children are worth it. Pharaoh's daughter, we know a couple of things about her. She clearly had resources because she had young women. She was in Pharaoh's household, and we'll say more about her as, uh, as we talk about uh, 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 Moses' identity in, in coming weeks. But what's clear is that she ignores her father's decree and does the right thing. it's a good example for us of what to do. But how does God redeem the situation for the mother and the boy? Let's just look at what the Lord does to redeem the situation. The daughter of Pharaoh, look at verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh sees the basket, takes it up from the water. Verse 6, she has pity on the child that she is supposed to kill. Then... Blessing on blessing, she sends Moses' sister to find a Hebrew nurse to nurse the child. But who's the nurse that the sister finds because God is kind? The mother. Not only does the mother then get to raise the baby, but Pharaoh's household funds the raising of Moses. Pharaoh pays for his own demise in God's economy. She adopts the boy, makes him an heir within and Pharaoh's household. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? God will redeem any desperate situation. What did the mother know about God that allowed her to place confidence in the Lord that he would redeem any situation, right? God did not bring our people here to die. He brought us here that we would live, and that's the testimony of every Christian. I was at my wit's end I had no more resources, I was at the end of my rope, but God did not bring me to the end of my rope that I would die, but that I would live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me." We've seen today that each of us is gonna find ourselves in a situation where God's gonna have to come through, and it's his ordinary pattern to take those moments and to show us his great grace, to fortify our faith in ever-increasing trials, knowing ultimately that Jesus Christ entered into the most desperate situation to redeem all of our desperate situations brothers and sisters I hope you know you don't have to bear the burden of your unimaginable circumstances with misplaced confidences even right now in your heart you might be thinking about a thing that seems so overwhelming I would invite you to trust the Lord with it to commit it to him to give it to him in prayer and say Lord please I'm at my wits end here and he will redeem this situation for you. You really can trust the author of life from death, the lover of your soul with your desperate situations. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know, God, that you keep your promises. It's hard to see sometimes, Lord, so you do take us through trials. And God, we're great. I'm grateful personally as a dad that you've never called me to place my baby in a basket to trust you with that. But God, I do pray that you would give me the eyes of faith one day to have that kind of faith, to believe, to believe like that, Lord, to trust like that. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray that we would give our lives for our neighbors. They are drowning in self-sufficiency. They're drowning in despair and misplaced confidences, and they are at an end to themselves. They need the Lord, and Lord, we are called to be ambassadors Lord, help us this week to be ambassadors, we pray in Jesus' name.